Welcome everyone to the fourth official Market Insights podcast this week with me, Andrew McGregor, aka El Pavotti, FTBL on Twitter. We have a first-timer from the Market Insights group in Matt Lawrence. So Matt, introduce yourself and explain that Twitter name for us. Hi there, guys. Yeah, I'm Matt, otherwise known as uh, the very snappily named Panners and Nutmegs on Twitter. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for having me on for the first time, guys. Let me out from behind a spreadsheet for once into the wild. So I'll pass over to, to Tim. Well, you've gone from, from the youngster making his debut to the grizzled veteran. My name's Tim Keach, also known as at sbunching on Twitter. And I'll pass on now to another, the, the, the most wonder kid of wonder kids, Ram Srinivas. Hi, uh, I am back for my second appearance. Um, luckily, I have been granted an opportunity despite my fumbling first appearance. So hello again. I'm Ram. Just you can search Ram Srinivas on Twitter if you really want to find my account. I like data, I like EFL football, and I listen to a lot of Radiohead every day. So without further ado, give the update. <laughs> no, it brings us it brings us on that nicely, actually, Ram, because as, as Tim said, you are the Wonderkind of our of our group, and we are talking about Wonderkids today. Now, obviously, what is a Wonderkid? I suppose, I suppose we've all been ma- you know, football manager fans over the years. So, uh, you know, I'll start with you, Tim. What is a Wonderkid to you? To me, a Wonderkid has to be someone who is not only young, because that's that's a given, but they have to be one of the best players on their teams from their debut. Um, I'm thinking Wayne Rooney, obviously, with my Everton bias. It shines out as an example of a player who came on and within a few seconds of you seeing him play, you knew that this kid was levels above most players of his age, easily good enough to play Premier League and probably one of the better players on the team. So I think to be a wonder kid, you have to be significantly standing out. What about you, Ram? I would agree with you. I suppose a wonder kid is someone who stands out from a very early age. But then there are times when it can go wrong as well. But even if you do think about the the wonder kids of today, like, for example, yesterday, people were talking a lot about Kai Havertz or Bayer Leverkusen. And he is someone who's also stood out from a very young age. I think at the age of 17, he was playing games for the Leverkusen first team and uh, juggling exams at school. So it's obviously something that sets in very quickly. Someone you should be able to identify who slots into the pace of the senior game without looking too much out of place. So that's always that's always a green flag, I suppose. There are there are examples where things don't quite pan out as intended. I'm a Chelsea fan, and I have seen this happen several times over. So. I, I can give you many examples, one of them being Josh McEachran, who came on against Liverpool in the Carling Cup 2009, was it? And he had the best debut I've ever seen uh, with my own eyes. And after that, his career did not pan out as expected, but that is something we will be covering eventually. So on to, on to Matt to hear his thoughts on what he thinks a wonder kid is like. Yeah, I think you guys have pretty much covered the bases there, really, in terms of it's those guys that really stand out as the not only being head and shoulders above those their age group, but those perhaps being 10 years their senior. If you're thinking about it, looking at Ronaldo winning the Ballon d'Or, age 21, is the perfect example of that. 
I, what I would say, and obviously from you know, there's, there's obviously an inside football and outside football perspective. I would ask you guys: Do you think that what are outside? Well, obviously, with the football managers, generally players under twenty three are considered one of the kids. But inside football, a lot of those players of twenty twenty one are already very well known within the football circles. They may not be known to the general fan as they haven't got access to them leagues, maybe. But do you think the actual real one, the kids, are those from like sixteen? to 19, and maybe some of them who slipped through the cracks, maybe, such as Gabriel Martinelli, who was obviously playing for a fourth division Brazil side, and obviously not part of the you know the usual Brazilian you know, scouting, scouting trips for people because he was playing for Ituano. Is that more what would you think is a wonder kid now inside football, in that it's more those players who are probably maybe late bloomers at 17, 18, 19, rather than the well-known prospects who have been great all the way through the academy system? Yeah, I think you get, um, you get, a, you get a mixture. You've obviously got your players who it's obvious from the age of 14 and they've got, they're starring in their own kind of YouTube highlights packages. It used to be, used to get a Mc, Scott Parker. I remember having a McDonald's advert when he was about 15 or 16, juggling a ball, which was a, a novelty in English football about 20 years ago. Um, so yeah, you've got, you've got your, your wonder kids who are obvious from day one, but I think what everyone in our kind of industry likes doing is is being the first to spot some Peruvian kid playing playing his debut at sixteen in the in the Peruvian division and then kind of moving on. Exactly, as they're infamous on Y Scout for the amount of a highly rated prospects they seem to have that never materialise. But um yeah, you've got you've got all kinds of I think it's probably nowadays because football is covered so widely and you've got massive amount of video footage of everyone um for example on instat the other day i looked at who the the highest rated players in the world were and it wasn't messy or anyone like that the, the top two players on the the instat index were a kid from iceland who was about nine and a 13 year old american so you can't hide nowadays if you do well in any tournament that's filmed it will be logged by someone somewhere so, yeah, although Martinelli seemed to slip through the net, and I'm sure there are a few others we could think of. Um, Matt, this time, what do you reckon? Yeah, I do think there is a difference in terms of within the industry and the general kind of fan consensus of, of what a wonder kid is, because within the industry, we've got access to additional, not only data, but slightly more extensive video that those within the general kind of public and fans don't have access to. And something else I think we should acknowledge as well is that those within the industry probably are looking to flex sort of their, their skills as well in terms of being able to not only identify good players, the good players that would fit into a correct system. And that applies not only to senior level, but also to youth level. If you're able to identify a player that perhaps is playing within a kind of not a possession-based system, but looks like he's he's got the attributes there to excel within a possession-based system and perhaps isn't being given the credit that he should rightly should be and being touted alongside some of the other wonder kids that play within teams or systems that fit uh, their skill set, then I do think there's slightly more of a thrill in being able to find those youngsters at kind of 16, 17, 18 um, that could fit into to the right system and be allowed to flourish if they are brought into the right system. Yeah, 
No, yeah, I was that brings me on to you know sort of the next point, and is you know is finding those wonder kids and, and obviously talent idea. You know, I, I you know currently within my current role within marketing sites, I don't exclusively look for young players. You know, when I was on Twitter, when I was you know doing my blog on Twitter, that's all I did because I think at the time that was what sort of got you noticed trying to find those young 17, 18, 19 year old players. I remember finding Lucy Nagumi who plays for now plays for Inter Milan. He's uh, was at the show, he's playing a lot of minutes as a young age. Very, very good young player. It was, it was exciting finding those players, but now when 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 working within football with clubs, I think it's more about finding players that fit. And now whether they're eighteen or whether they're twenty five, it doesn't really matter as long as they fit within, as you say, that system. Whether they fit the what the manager wants, some managers don't want young projects. They would prefer to work work with, you know, play a bit more experienced, a bit more well rounded players. You haven't got a lot of growing to do. So I think, I think you know, you know, in terms of finding one of the kids, and we all got 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 our own methods or finding good young players, you know, in terms of, you know, talent ID. Tim, what, in terms of yourself, how, how do you go about trying to identify players at a young age who you think have got both potential and are also good enough now, you know, good enough to play at, you know, a higher level? Well, I think it, it, it depends on the position they play in. And I think it's a lot easier to spot young forwards um, simply just on looking at the very basics of who's playing minutes which is the obvious one. But if you've got someone who's regularly getting game time at the age of 17, they're worth a look regardless of the level they're playing at. Because, I mean, you you do get some clubs that have to play people because of kind of circumstances. But most clubs who are throwing in a, a 17 or 18-year-old are doing so because they are standing out and they're an early developer. So if you're looking for a forward, you're probably looking at the the obvious are they getting good shots off are they getting are they dribbling past players that's something i quite like looking at is kind of how comfortable are they because that's obviously a sign of confidence as well as if you've got a 17 year old who's coming on and they're they're going past adult players with ease regularly then that's obviously a very good sign um i think it's harder probably to judge things like central midfielders i can only there's fabregas and people like that who came through at a ridiculously young age but most players in the middle of the pitch nowadays, especially with the kind of high press, tend to be a bit older. Um, obviously, there are exceptions with the Salzburg and Leipzig and so on who throw players in really early. But Premier League-wise, it's generally forwards, isn't it? I think of like Mason Greenwood and people this season have uh, been thrown at the deep end and have done really well. And I think it's easier to chuck a, a forward on for 10 minutes at the end of a game than it is to to bring a centre back on. So, yeah, there's lots of lots of different ways. I think minutes played though is the key just getting experience is obviously always a good sign i think i i definitely agree with what tim said about minutes played being your initial filter so to speak because you're always going to look at players young players who are playing a lot of minutes uh, irrespective of what league they're playing in oh just on your point on central midfielders immediately when i think of young central midfielders that I have watched and been wowed by. Um, just if you take the example of Chelsea, since that's the club that I can name a lot of examples from off the top of my head. I, I named him McEachran earlier, but there's also someone like Ethan Ampadu, who when you watch, he comes on and I like to look at the way these players have generally acquitted themselves given the environment they're in. They're amongst a bunch of senior players at a very high level, if it's a club like Chelsea. Of course, this is relative to the level that they're playing at, but generally the step up from 
youth football to senior football is well palpable to say the least so a player like amparu when he comes on and he is immediately displaying a very positive body language in the sense that he gets stuck in quite often stuck in the challenges and personally i like it when a young player does not shy away from communicating a lot with his senior teammates because someone like amparu likes to for example show jorginho around and someone like mckechran probably didn't do this he was uh he was content to just have the ball at his feet and do his thing and then there is someone like billy kilmore who comes in and he's not as physically developed as ethan ampadu is at more or less the same age but billy kilmore has this tenacity to his play and he's very involved so i like i really like it when a young central midfielder is playing and he gets very involved in the thick of things that there was a player at west bromwich albion named rakim harper who plays in central midfield and loves to dribble with the ball but then i didn't feel that he was the most involved player when he was playing so it's just a pet pet peeve of mine to look at players who get involved at younger ages in proceedings and who don't hide from the ball because some some of them do and i think it's always a positive sign when a player is doing that just you know i i you know i agree with what you've said there it's sense of field is such a is now such an important position with football it's probably changed over you know the last 10 years in terms of it's probably the the sense the midfield area is probably now the most important part of the pitch with teams tactically based a lot of their decisions around and i think this season's tim is right generally they tend to be more older players who play in midfield but this season obviously we've seen Jude Bellingham of Birmingham City and we've seen uh, Edward Camavinga of, of Rennes, who've both come in and, and played beyond the years, really. I think, even though Bellingham, I think, has been on the radar since, you know, since he was 13, 14. I remember Michael Calvin's book. Uh, he was very heavily featured in that when they were talking about Birmingham City and how his relationship with the, the training staff there and how they thought he was going to be a star. And Camavinga's been someone who's been on the radar for you know 18 months or so now. I think it, it is very much, you know, that, as you say, with Camavinga, especially there around, you know, that that composure on the ball, that, you know, that beyond the years, I think that's, you know, they, you know, probably I was going to mention this later, but those unquantifiables, obviously we look at data a lot. And obviously when I'm looking at young players, I want players who are performing at an above average level at, at 18. I don't expect them to be the best player in the league, like Kylian Mbappe. Because Mbappe is an outlier, but if I can see an eighteen-year-old in a competitive league performing at above average level, to me that projects that they could, they could, they've got some, a bit, they've got some potential. I think that I think with Camavingi, he has got those unquantifiables. Although he is performing at a really good level, he's also so composed for 17, 18 year old that it's beyond. Which is why teams like Real Madrid are probably interested in him. So I think that that's a really good point about you know that mentality. Is something that you look for in young players that sets different ones apart. You know, there's a lot of good young players in world football, but that mentality, that, that awareness, that you know, intelligence from a young age is something we look at. In terms of Matt, have you got any different types of methods when you look at young players? Any different things that you think about? Yeah, I think I've got got a few in terms of you touched upon. There was kind of those looking players that perform above average. One thing I I look to do is try and understand or kind of pinpoint particular actions that they do, whether it be a winger. If I can see within the youth game in the video that I've watched that they're performing, say, X number of dribbles effectively and getting a lot of touches in the box, how well does that specific action 
or attribute translate into the senior game. So if they're excelling within a certain attribute within uh, the youth system, how easily transferable is that to the senior game? Because if that's not being transferred successfully to the senior game, you're instantly taking away arguably one of their, their better traits. And that gives you an indication that perhaps they won't survive at this level. Perhaps they're not ready. Perhaps the system doesn't allow those attributes that they were being used successfully within the youth game to flourish within the senior team. That's a great point, Matt. And uh, I think that's that's key. It's it's all about that transferability of skills, as you've just said. Because I think I mentioned on a previous pod, Everton had a striker, Hallam Hope, who was unbelievable at youth level. But some of his, probably his best attributes, were holding off players, turning and shooting. And he couldn't hold off senior centre-backs as well um, as he could youth players. And I think, if you remember... Back in the day, they used to show this Victory Shield tournament was something that Sky showed, which is like an under-16 level tournament between the home nations. And you often saw players in that who would be physically well-developed wingers, pacey, could push the ball past it, lots of stepovers. And they always used to get rave reviews and the commentators would be saying, oh, I can't wait to see him in the Premier League. But they often used to disappear because those tricks don't work on senior professionals and you don't have the power advantage you don't have the pace advantage so you've really got to look at are they a good footballer all round um you do get exceptions sometimes people like michael owen come through and from kind of 16 17 even though they're probably not physically fully developed they are fast enough and have enough kind of explosive movement that they can compensate for the lack of pure kind of body strength and they have made a youth career of kind of honing those skills. Raheem Sterling's another one. He came through and he looked like he was a cut above at youth level. But as soon as he came into the senior team, that pace was still faster than senior players. So he was able to use those skills. Um, so, yeah, you've always got to be looking for these these kind of standout players. But I think there's an awful lot of players who have come through and been hyped over the years who just haven't been able to transfer it across. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you touched on there, Tim, regarding the physicality and in particular um, kind of in those forward positions and also central defenders as well, where they're able to impose themselves physically on the game at youth level, where they may be slightly more developed than others, big strapping six foot four lads. But how well does that translate into... Uh, the senior game when you're coming up against a centre-half that is of equal size to you, knows all the, the tricks of the trade, um, how how quickly can you translate and adapt to that? And one competition that I do think has a place in being able to judge the ability of players and their translation is the EFL trophy with the under-23 teams being, being allowed into, to enter that tournament and see them up against senior pros with EFL experience. I think that's a really interesting tournament in which we can kind of begin to gauge how they might fare at a at senior level. Yeah, that's 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 interesting because obviously it had a lot of controversy, that tournament. But it has been quite interesting to kind of pick out these kind of all-conquering youth teams who have been top of the Premier League on the 23 table, coming up against often kind of the fringe players at a League One or League Two club. And often struggling um, just because they are suddenly up against senior pros. And it does show that even though 
we kind of we compare youth on youth and you can see how good someone is compared to other 17 or 18 year olds all those players who are in the league one reserve team have passed all those hurdles already they've already got into a senior team they've already got first team football and even though they're not as exciting as Chelsea's new one ticket or whatever often they'll in the long term end up with a, a football career while some of these other players will kind of drift away because it is these players have already passed the selection Andy what do you uh, what are your thoughts no, I, I, I tend to agree. I think pitching younger players earlier is, you know, it will get onto this now. I'll move, I'll move the topic on. But as my part and thought that links with the, the next bit, I think with play, players playing against older players and learning to solve problems earlier and learning how to deal with the extra physicality and intensity and pace to the game is essential. And you think if you look at, look at the, you know, countries like France, which has got such an abundance of good young players and a lot of, a lot of wonder kids, shall we say, I think it's they tend to pit. And same with the Dutch as well. You know, you look at Boa doing stings. They play for AZ2 in the second division of Holland. And I think the Ajax team players as well. I think that really helps develop them quicker at a younger age. Whereas I think due to the Premier League and what we have for the system we have here, it's, it's much more difficult, obviously. Phil Foden's one of the great, great young players of his generation. But he plays, for the, he plays in one of the best two teams in the country and he can't get those minutes. And it's, it's very... Difficult here, I think. I think, especially with those full wonder kids or those super talents, you have to look at Jaden Sancho, of course, who went to to Dortmund to, to get that that game for valuable game time. Look how good he is now. People are looking to pay one hundred million plus for him. I think it's 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 vital at those competitions and those and, and players play at a young age. And I think that's why when you look at you know, I think t- people when they tend to think of wonder kids, they're not generally English players. There's been a few, but they tend to be, you know, you've got your Milners, your Roonies and whatever you're not, but they tend to be foreign players who've played at, you know, from a very early age in the first team in, in good leagues. Now, obviously, we, we wanted to I'm moving this discussion on, but, you know, in terms of loans and development of players, how, how important do you guys think the, 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 the way people loans are matching those players to good to team styles? How important is that? Rather than sending, as we've said, you know, off air, you know, Serge Gnabry to Tony Pulis and, and Ross Barkley to, to Neil Warnock when he was at when he was at Everton, those days those aren't good loans for young players. So I think, what are your thoughts on in terms of the loan system and the development of young players in this country? I think it's a a, a fundamental issue in football at the moment with the kind of stockpiling of talent at some of the bigger clubs. Um, they're often signing players from smaller clubs who are already in the first team. Um, I think I mentioned in the Everton podcast had the likes of. Dennis Adeniran at Everton, who had already played a few games for Fulham. Um, there was a guy they took from QPR as well, who again has oh, gone yeah. into yeah has gone into a, a loan at Hull this year, which is kind of semi worked out, but not really. Uh, Kieran Dowell's been through a few. Well, his his initial loan at Nottingham Forest with Kieran Dowell worked out quite well, but after six months, they swapped manager to Karanka, who suddenly put him as a kind of left wing back which really isn't his game so kind of looking at matching playing systems and styles to the actual players individual skills is a massive thing a lot of Premier League teams now have loan managers but I still don't think loans are the perfect system I think certainly think that there's room for clubs to be moving towards either a sale with buyback which I think then kind of shifts the incentives so that Instead of having a player on your books, you know he's not going to get in your team because you've got 40, 40 players um, already in your squad. And this 
person is third or fourth choice. Well, they're ne realistically they're never going to play for the first team. So why not find them the best possible move? Either give them to the club or sell them very cheaply to a club. And basically, a bit like uh, Delafeo did with Barcelona and Everton, where he moved to Everton um, for a very small fee. I think it was only about three, three or four million pounds. But Barcelona had quite a cheap buyback of like 10 or 12 million pounds which for Barcelona is, is a very small amount. Um, it got him guaranteed kind of first-team football with Everton. And Barcelona then bought him back when he was worth more money um, and ended up selling him again a few years later. But I think what we could we like to say to clubs is basically, you don't have to be a, a formal relationship, but finding two or three clubs who play similar styles of football to you, share the same kind of development philosophy and kind of, we can we've already helped facilitate that type of conversation between clubs within our our client base where we can say to one club that player you're not going to play him he's on even if he's on a hundred thousand pounds a year that club can pay him sixty thousand pounds a year um take over his contract you'll pay the difference and you've got the option to buy him back in a year or two's time for relatively little money um or if he gets sold on to a different club you get money back as a quite a large sell-on fee for that player so there's loads of options available to clubs and it's really just kind of being slightly more ruthless I think than clubs have been with getting rid of players early on no one wants to be the person who got rid of Zinedine Zidane when he was 18 but you've got to be realistic a lot of these players will drift out of the game and if you can get them out of your club and get a, a sell-on percentage or some reduce your wage bill then that's an instant win for the club finances so yeah I think clubs have to be ruthless. I think another thing we we also need to consider within the loan spectrum as well is that we are within a, a result business here as well it needs to be not only financially incentivized for the club but also for the manager as well and the team itself and team performance. Is a manager willing to put his, his neck on the line for example for a player that isn't owned by the club they're not going to see the economic benefit of uh, developing that player um, once the season is finished, for example. And if they're in a, in a moment where they're struggling in terms of league position and struggling to get results, is there that incentive there for the manager to play that younger player, which is, let's be honest, it's probably more of a risk than sticking in a 30-year-old centre-half as opposed to a 19-year-old centre-half. And if there is that incentive for the club where they are getting a kickback financially, for example, if that 19-year-old does does excel and the club were not to have the greatest results, um, will there be a financial kickback from sort of that um, kind of buyback fee from the parent club effectively? I think that's really, really a really good point there in the sense that I know from speaking to people in, in, in Holland especially, that's something that's becoming really prevalent there where what clubs are doing like Ajax is they're loaning their good young players and other uh, Sven Botman who's a centre-back to, to uh, here in Wien. And what, what, they, what they're looking to, what other Dutch teams are looking to do is they're looking to give when they loan these players out for a year or two and if the players develop and then they come to the first team and then they sell them because obviously Ajax, even though they're a great side they still do sell players if they're selling players they're looking to give teams a percentage so it's incentivising 
you know, clubs to 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 develop these players for these bigger teams. And I think obviously in this in this country we we don't like the idea of B teams, but that might be an idea, especially for EFL clubs who haven't got a lot of money. If they take a, a you know a Chelsea youth player on loan, that they know that they're going to get maybe a couple of hundred thousand out of his next move because they've spent two years to helping them develop him. I think I think that's that's an idea that it, it require more cooperation from English clubs. To do so, I think they do it much better in Germany and Holland than they do here. But I think that that's a good idea, Tim, in, in the sense that you can have a network of clubs. Obviously, you can have the, the Leipzig, the, you know, the Leipzig Salzburg leafing model, where obviously they go up the the tiers, you know, and develop as they go. But I think you know cooperation between clubs is is, is probably the, the next next best thing if you can't afford to buy those multiple clubs. Exactly, yeah, and um, I think Ram's been working on something to to look around Europe to see kind of which which clubs do give minutes to young players and which clubs might be better sources for loans and vice versa. So places you can send players on loan who will get minutes and places who give youth teams players a lot of minutes. So Ram, do you want to talk to us a bit about what you've been doing on Tableau? Yeah, there's something that Matt and I have been working on for a while now, which is... Well, if you're a club like Chelsea or any club that is interested in the value of your young players growing, and even if you even if you're not going to play them in your first team, you probably want them to be as valuable as possible so as to sell them and get a maximum return on your investment. So, if you're sending players out on loan, which is what a lot of clubs do now, clubs like Chelsea, Brighton. Wolves, Man City, Watford have a lot of players out on loan. The thing, the thing is, I have seen examples where a club has sent a player to a team that plays a style of football where he really doesn't fit. For example, Chelsea sent Lewis Baker on loan to Gary Monk, managed Middlesbrough. And that was followed by Tony Pulis taking over Middlesbrough, which was an absolute disaster for Lewis Baker and a turn of very bad luck. But the fact of the matter is that could have been avoided because Lewis Baker isn't the type of player to fit in a Gary Monk system. He is someone who needs to see a lot of the ball, preferably sit deep, uh, ping it about, basically play a deep-lying playmaker role in a possession-based side, which is why he probably worked well for Jose Gomes' Reading side as Matt will probably know, being a Reading fan. But the point is, you need, ideally, you should find teams that are A, playing a similar style of football to what you want the player to fit into and or what you've been developing the player to have been playing in your youth teams if, if, the, consist, if the philosophy is consistent across age groups. Or you want to send the player on loan to a team that plays a style that suits his traits. So Lewis Baker should have probably gone to a team like Jose Gomes Reading instead of Gary Monk's Middlesbrough. And when he went to Vitas Arnhem, which was in a country that obviously suited his style of playing more, he did very well there. For two seasons, he became one of Vitas Arnhem's best players, one of the best young players in the Eredivisie. So these things matter a lot. And so what Matt and I have been developing is... I'm sorry. Yeah. Ram, do you think there's do you think there's an argument that players should should go to clubs where they will be taken out of their comfort zone and 
learn to play real men's football. That would be the counter argument, wouldn't it? Rather than indulging them with managers who only could play to their strengths, why not send them out and toughen it them up? Would. Do you think there's any merit to uh, that? It would, but I think that this should be looked at in, well, in close context with the player's development trajectory. So there are some players who will adapt. For example, Mason Mount went to Vitas Arnhem first, and then he went to Derby County. So Netherlands, the same step as Lewis Baker, Netherlands to the championship. And he is a type of player who, well, in a sink or swim situation like that, he obviously swam and he applied his physicality a lot more and became this pressing beast that Lampard likes to use at Chelsea now. But some players can um, they, they probably they probably can't adapt because they're just inherently better suited to a different league. I think that's something that is acceptable to say about a player because someone like Lewis Baker went to Middlesbrough and he 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 struggled there for a year. He tried to break in, and at one point when a player reaches maybe twenty two or twenty three, it becomes apparent that they cannot. Um, suit a certain style of play. So at that point, you sh- it's it's best to cut them loose. So I don't see a problem in sending them to a different style of team at an earlier point in their in their career, hopefully. But loans around the age of 20 to 21 become very important because once a player is 22 and has about 1.5 seasons of wasted development, then it becomes a seriously false start. So while while it is important to put a fish out of water or a frog out of his well, um, to use that metaphor, it should be done in a controlled manner. So, uh, yeah, not only have Matt and I recognize teams that are willing to play young players more, which is something that could be conducive to this, because players need opportunities, uh, even when they're playing in different styles. So if there's a team that has historically given chances to younger players more or a manager that has done the same, then we probably prefer that team than a team with a different style, but has a manager like Gary Monk, who probably is less inclined to play a loney in a system that doesn't suit him. I think you made you know that that's a great great point there, Ram. I think just something I'd like to pick up pick up on there is the loans. You know, in terms of the ages, I'm a firm believer in. You know, the issue with especially in England, and again, I've mentioned before why it's not necessarily the same in Europe is because. Obviously, a lot of teams have B teams in Holland. The Ajax Young play in the second, you know, the AST Divisie, and in Germany they had the, you know, the uh, Bayern, especially their second team, and even Dortmund's playing the region Easter. They play against other men's teams as well, so that their, their players are facing a lot more, a lot of you know, men from a younger age. I think, especially in England, and the, the problem with the academy system is, you know, I'll use Everton as an example. Is unfortunately Everton don't seem to loan players prior to them being twenty. And I think if you haven't played men's football by the age of 20, I did it, a rough idea of this. Obviously, I'm sure there'll be a few exceptions. But most of the players who've made it, you know, a, a good Premier League career were out on loan by 18 or 19. And I think it, in terms of the loan, you know, as Tim said, it is good to send them out at 18, 19, maybe to experience different types of football. But as you say, Ram, when they are 20, 20, 21, 20, you know, obviously 22 is probably too late. If they're not going to be fit, say, Chelsea's first team and Lewis Baker, would, isn't it more conducive to Chelsea to send them somewhere where he's going to show his value so maybe a team does come in and buy him rather than sending them a 20, 21 to a team where it doesn't suit them like, like, you, like you use the examples? 
exactly that's that's an excellent point which is why in terms of in terms of loans again it's beneficial when a player is at well crossroads so to speak that he he's got to be sold within the next season maybe for chelsea to make any money on him like when a player is 22 and hasn't played much in the recent past then that next loan suddenly becomes very important as you say so they send him to fortuna they sent him to fortuna dusseldorf this season and again that hasn't suited him very well and things have gone a bit awry there so that's that's why we look at teams that could probably help a player take that even if it's a comfortable loan it's one that will probably increase his value and that ultimately serves the interests of the player at that point of his career and the parent club as well so that's why that that's just another reason andy uh, why you should probably look at teams who have a good fit in terms of playing style at this at the end of their loan cycle so to speak and at the beginning as well assuming in the middle somewhere you want to send a player to experience a different style of football and i think i think one thing that's um not really struck home yet is the, the impact brexit's going to have on the ability of young english players to find loan destinations because for, for all the time we've we've had free freedom of movement um we've been able to send players to the the netherlands is the, the classic example of a league where which Chelsea have certainly used a lot for for young players to get men's football experience in and certainly there have been other players going around at various places in Scandinavia I know Liverpool sent Ojo um on loan to France last year as well and I think what we're going to see now is a lot of young English players who previously would have been loaned abroad no longer qualifying for work permits so it's probably going to open up a few new new avenues probably the USL um the american second division is one i've certainly been well we as a company have worked in and think is a very good destination for for young english players probably not the the top tier youngsters but certainly the the could make a career as professionals who just need some experience in certainly a slightly less physically challenging league um i think the problem with dropping down into non league football in england is it's not sufficiently technical once you get to a certain level down for it to be of benefit to a technical player um so you're probably better going to the USL in that case um i think personally think cross border moves to scotland are going to be quite a new thing for for young players i think there's huge potential in partnering up with a club in scotland and sending your best five 18 year olds there from both the geographic point of view this you got to remember these are still quite young young people they're not at 17 or 18 not many people are ready to kind of permanently move to a new place away from friends family um to work full time um so i think having the ability to travel within two or three hours to or three or four hours to your home is is an important thing um so i think yes England to Scotland loan moves are going to become more and more prevalent in the, in the coming years. Um Andy, I don't know if you've got any points to to add to that. No, no, I think I think you you've rounded that that discussion off really really well. I was just I was going to you know, you know move it on obviously we've been talking about the academy systems that people have and I think we, you know Matt, Matt's obviously been doing a lot of work around the UEFA Youth League which obviously is the premier competition for players you know under 19 in in Europe and I think 
it's one that's often overlooked properly. So, you know, Matt, in terms of what the work you've been doing on it, what, what do you think that the UEFA Youth League is a good barometer for, for, for a player in terms of finding out whether they are or they can make the step up to men's football? Yeah, so as you've touched on there, I've been doing doing some work with the UEFA Youth League as effectively it's kind of, I, I perceive it to be the best area in which, or best tournament in which we can kind of gauge um, a youth player's performance versus youth because it is the premier competition for under-19s there. Um, and I do think that we've been looking at a combination of data and how, how that translates into the senior, the senior game as well. Um, and we, ca- we can see that there is a translation between the performance within the UEFA Youth League and into the senior game. So as I touched on earlier, if we were looking at particular metrics, uh, say a winger or a wide player that performs a high volume of dribbles, for example, England have now started to produce this player in a far higher volume than they used to. We're seeing a lot more players of this style, high volume dribblers, very creative, coming through the English youth system. Just to name a few, we've seen Marcus Edwards, Jaden Sancho, Hudson Adoy, and Rabi Matondo. And they've all been standout players at youth level. And we're now seeing that translate into the senior game as well. So, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of that, if we can get a, an understanding within sort of 500 minutes of data at senior level as to whether that, will, that player is able to translate their dribbles to the senior game, then it's a, a fantastic indication that in future, perhaps we're able to, to use these identifiers and qualifiers to pick up players at an earlier stage. The other thing as well with the UEFA Youth League is they are all playing for the elite teams, effectively, those competing within the Champions League. So I think there is an opportunity for clubs outside of the Champions League, playing in Premier Divisions across the continent, to be able to exploit the lack of opportunities that players may not get at these kind of super clubs because their pathways are blocked. We've seen Jaden Sancho, very capable player, moving away from Manchester City uh, over to Dortmund to get minutes. Rabi Matondo has made exactly the same move there, moving from uh, England to Germany again. And we've also seen Marcus Edwards make that move from England to Portugal as well. And Portugal's uh, a nation that's notorious for, for bringing through talented wingers and wide players as well. So there's that, as we touched upon earlier, there's that kind of stylistic understanding of we're sending him to, an, uh, to a, a league where that kind of player can thrive. It's not overly, overly physical and it will allow him to kind of flourish within that league. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And the, the fact that the kind of UEFA Youth League has the best against the best in theory, although I'm sure lots of clubs will disagree with that. But do you think you get a better reflection out of UEFA Youth League data than you would out of Premier League 2 data in terms of the transferability of the kind of metrics from that into senior football? Because I think if you look back through a list of the top scorers from the Premier League 2 and the, the tournaments that preceded it, a lot of them have not really gone on to make good careers. They've just hit a lot of goals against players who also haven't gone on to have good careers. So do you think this this extra quality is what's making this data more 
useful? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's it's like anything. If we were to to look at it within the senior game, if we were looking at players performing at a higher higher level or a higher category, higher ranking league, we'd immediately say, well, this player has a better chance of perhaps stepping up into another another level into a higher league. So I think that that does need to be taken into account at youth level as well with the, the elite playing the elite down there. And like you say, domestically as well, things can become regionalised within countries as well. So you're making that pool of talent ever smaller as you, you drop down domestically. Whereas if you're having those, those elite teams with a continental uh, entry point as well, um, I think it's a far better testing ground in understanding and identifying players um, there because domestically you may have a number of very strong teams competing for players within a, a certain geographical catchment area as well. If we're looking at London, for example, we've got a number of teams there and also within the northwest of England as well. We're looking at a number of teams so Liverpool, Manchester United and City, for example, will be competing within similar sort of pools of catchment areas. Whereas when we're, we're looking at it geographically and moving perhaps uh, to, to bigger teams that are able to dominate um, the domestic game. So Dinamo Zagreb, for example, notoriously, they're bringing through a lot of, a lot of exciting and talented players. Now that, that kind of domination within the league allows them to bring through the the premier players from their domestic uh, domestic area and allows them to kind of create some sort of, I want to say super, but the, the catchment area itself, there's not that level of competition there and they have more dominance over the kind of players that they can bring through. I think I think you're right there, you know, Matt, in terms of it's a, the youth league is a, a very interesting and probably underutilized. I think if you look at, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, for example, who've tended to buy a lot of their current first team players. You have Edouard, who obviously went to Celtic. You have um, Jonathan Cohn, who is now at Leo, And you have uh, Balotelli, who's now the left-back for Monaco. All them players were in the youth system for PSG, and they never really were able to make it to the first team, but they would be playing in those youth tournaments all the time and obviously making a splash, I think, that ability to draw the data from there will obviously you know, help, help us identify players, but it's something that will obviously be held. I think it's a fertile ground, as you say, because teams don't tend to you know utilise what they, what they develop and they don't give chances to them because there's probably shiny new toys, really. Uh, obviously, you know, you know, we'll, you know, we'll move on now to the listener questions as we are at the point in the podcast. So we have a question from Trey the Blade. Uh, it's two-part, but I'll ask the first one to you guys. Um would you say there are more Freddie Adus than there are James Rodriguez in terms of wonder kids who make it big when they're young and continue that into the long into the professional career? I'll I'll go for it then. Um, I think yes, obviously. I think a lot of players get hyped up very early on, and I'm guilty of it as everyone else is. I remember every time someone at Everton comes through, you, you're hoping it's the the new Wayne Rooney, and obviously that these are once-in-a-generation players coming through youth systems. So um, you do tend to get players who completely shine at a very early age and get, get found out in adult football. And you also get people who, who take longer to develop. And it's, it is, it's not a linear process. You do get players who are physically developed earlier than their peers. Um, 
it's also when you're some someone like Freddie Adu, you're talking about players thrown into adult football at 14, 15, 16 years old. It's it's just a weird environment for a 14 year old to be in playing against 30 year olds. So I think there's a there's a safeguarding aspect of it where you've got to look after the the mental health. And I know a lot of kind of former youth prodigies have suffered in later years with the kind of the, the sheer expectation level on them and being disappointed if they go a, a game without scoring and just the kind of thousands of disappointed people who come to see you play because they think you're the new Pele. And in reality, you, you've made a decent living from football, but you haven't actually ever fulfilled the expectations other people have put on you. So it, it, it is difficult. I think there's just far too many labels, as you said there, Tim, the next Pele, next Messi, the next Ronaldo, the next Neymar. I think sometimes players just need to be allowed to, to flourish. I think, you know, there's, there's obviously the, the the young kid at Dortmund, Makoko, who's been playing men's football since he was 13. I think he's been playing against all, all you know, in all the teams. And we'll, we'll see with him. But I think he's obviously, been, you know, you know, Obviously, Chris and the next big striker in, in terms of he's only, I think he's only 15 and 16 now. But I think it should, you, you need to see how they perform against Ben. And, and like, like you rightly said with Freddie, you do. Freddie obviously was 14 when he played for DC United and he had the whole expectation of a country because obviously America is, you know, now they're producing much better players, of course. You've got your Pulisic, your Child Adams, uh, you know, you know the other type of players like that. I think at the time, though, they're very much the expectation and mentality, you know, the mental aspect of it is is much different. I think, you know, obviously with the age, age of social media now and if you look at Diego you know, Diego Maradona when he was a prodigy at twelve, I think even though there was a great expectation, it's not as much as it is now because people are getting watched at such a young age. So I think yes, there are certainly more Freddie Adus than there are Hammers Rodriguez. Matt Ram, any any more to add to that? I think that a lot of this could be avoided if young players who are showing promise at a very early level are given less hype. If people from the outside looking in are controlled with the way they hype these kids up, I think that goes a long way in a perception of a player as a Freddie Adu or an ex-Pele or an ex-Maradona. I'm going to get a little philosophical here, so pardon me. But I think that I often ask myself, does a player really end up a failure if... He doesn't live up to initial hype, but ends up making a decent career in football for himself. For example, if Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who played against Yaya Toure in a post-season friendly in 2012, and looked decent, maybe that's your modern-day equivalent of Freddie Adu in midfield, because I think Freddie Adu's specific situation is, well, not very easily replicable, but... In this case, Ruben Loftus-Cheek made an appearance in a postseason friendly and he looked okay and he got so much hype that it was unbelievable. And then Mourinho just utterly mismanaged him and then he got a lot of pressure from the fans, the media. He had two appearances where he started in a weird number 10 role and then got taken off after 45 minutes. And now he's 24, suffering from various unfortunate injuries. And let's say in the future, he doesn't end up becoming one of the greatest Chelsea midfielders to have existed. But if he ends up going on to become a top top six, top eight English midfielder who occasionally plays for the national team, I would say that's not that's not really a failure. Because, yeah, the, the, the probability of any youth player making it really big is low. We know this. So whether a player turns out to be world, incredibly world-class or if he turns out to be like Jack Cork, another kind of low-key example to come out of Chelsea's academy, 
I think the measures of success should not be, well, they should not be astronomical from us whenever we see a young prospect. So I think very fundamentally, I, I cannot ask myself the question, if there are more Freddie Adu's than there are Kai Havertz's or whatever, because I think as long as expectation management exists, it becomes easier for a young player. And you just, I think you, the view of player being a success based on initial promise needs to change. So sorry, sorry to answer that sort of tangent, tangentially, but um, what can I do? I'm philosophical. And this is what I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think you've made some really, really good points, especially about what, what is success really, you know, in a sense, you know, there was a second part to Trailer Blade's question, which I'll, I'll ask Matt for this one. We've already answered some of it. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down and I'll, I'll give you my thoughts now. In terms of young players and one of the kids, Matt, physical attributes, do you think, how, how much importance do you place on them? I think there is a is a big importance on them and some players may may never be able to, to cope physically. Uh, but like we touched upon earlier, those those tournaments that do expose them to senior football earlier on allow us to understand at an earlier age whether they can they can play at a senior level and cope with that physicality um i don't think physique is is the be all and end all we've seen players that have come through and been successful at five foot eight and reached the top the top heights of, of football win champ and won champions leagues being six foot two is not everything in this game um but i really do think that a better measure of that is to to understand the the key attributes within their positional requirements. So, for example, as we touched upon earlier, it's, it's looking at wingers. Can they can they dribble? How successful is a centre half, for example, at aerial duels if they're if they're not um, if they're not performing well at youth level and coping with strikers of their own age? and are struggling to compete and win aerial duels, be dominant, then there's going to be a very low chance that they're going to be able to step up and improve in that area when they go and compete in, in senior football, regardless of, of physique. Yeah, I think um, robustness is the word I'd use. So it's not so much are they physically like strong build and extremely powerful and quick. It's if they're a if they're a central midfielder, an Iniesta type or someone, are they capable of playing fifteen hundred to two thousand five hundred minutes of football without picking up injuries or being kicked out of the game? And it's it's more a kind of combination of attitude and your body itself and how physically capable you are. And I think I think the biggest change that a youth player will probably notice is stepping up to senior football is how how it changes in terms of how much of the ball you have. And there's some interesting studies been done on this about how much possession of a ball a player has in 90 minutes. And in a youth team, you're probably looking at, if you're the star player in a youth team, you're probably getting on the ball a lot. You're, you're always in space. You pick up the ball, you beat two or three players. You're doing that loads of times a game. If you're in a men's game, you may only actually have the ball at your feet for about 90 seconds or to, to two minutes in, the, in a 90-minute game. And so, so much more of the game is the off-ball stuff, the, the movement, the finding the space. Um, and I think that that is a big change in senior football. So I think it's not just physique, it's also like, yeah, how robust, how how you can adapt to the changing of the game. I think that, that actually, I think you and Matt made some great points there. My, my closing 
um, one about this is about both. And in terms of the physicality, I think it can always be quite misleading. I think if you're a, you know you're six foot three, you know built like you know built in a man's body, you know similar to the way Rooney or Lukaku was. Obviously, they've made it as big careers, but there's been a lot of players like that who've dominated you know physically smaller players in the youth setup. And when they've gone up against men, they've struggled to obviously because their whole game has been based around that physical dominance. You know, I look at, you know, example, I, you know, I hope he proves me wrong, but Brian Broby, who's who's a very famous young striker now at Ajax, who's, you know, always been so physically dominant over the defenders he's faced. I worry about him stepping up to the, the top levels of football because I just don't think that he's going to have that advantage. And I think a lot of his game is based around that physical advantage. He may improve and adapt. He, he, he may not, we'll see. But I think it's very physique can be for on physical, you know, attributes can be very misleading. On what you know, what Tim said there in terms of that, I it's a basketball term. I it's, it's you, you know you, you know user user percent in terms of how much you receive the ball. It, it, that is a big mentality shift, and I think people. I think t- players do struggle from, as you say, being the star of a youth team with every everything is built around them and everything goes through them. To maybe going into a team where they don't have as much of the ball and they're playing in a in a poorer side, maybe you have to sort of adapt those mental adaptations and being able to be, you know, be chameleon, if you will, and play in different situations and you know being able to pick your part, pick your spots in games better, is a big jump. And you know, we looked at Kieran Dow, you know, in terms of the way he. When he played in youth football, I think he could step in and out of a game. But now it's more noticeable as a, as a you know as a you know as a pro player as a, against adults that he just goes missing far too often, and he's used to being able to just you know flitting and out of a game. But the mentality changes that more is expected here in men's football. So I think they were they were they were two great points. We all, we also had a question. Um, we also had a question, sorry, from is the second one from Thomas Wilson ninety five. Do you think that guys, do you think the clubs will be more likely to take a punt on a young player that comes from a club with a good track record of producing young players? Obviously, we've mentioned Dynamo, Barcelona, Ajax, that type. What do you guys think of that? Do you think team, teams are more willing to give players like that a chance? Yeah, I think I think there's there's teams who put in lots of young players. Um, there's a couple of examples like Zelina. Um, in Slovakia is, is very famous for doing so um, and they make it part of their identity they they are one of the youngest I think Slovakia generally is one of the youngest leagues in Europe and they they have lots of clubs who who pride themselves on putting young players in so obviously the quantity of players available from those teams are higher um, there's Vitor Roll and as well in Romania Haji's team who who do a similar thing and they, they're based around developing players Nord, Nordsjaland in Denmark as well so you've got these these youth development specialist clubs. I think clubs will take players from there, and I think they like the fact that they've got fifty to hundred senior games under their belts before they sign them. So they will look there. But also, you hear people in the game saying that they they want players who are used to playing in a similar style. And a lot of these youth development clubs play a style of football which is nice, pretty, but they probably call it academy football. Um, I think that's probably slightly unfair sometimes because I think certainly the Denmark they they face teams that are a lot more robust, so they they're just good small interchange passing type teams. Um, so yeah, I think clubs clubs do look at that, but I think there's it's always the individual. It's never the team. Yeah, no, Tim, I, I, you're right there. I was going to I was going to mention Nords Jalen Jalen myself, and I think 
Barcelona, an example of a club. I think when players come out of Barcelona, I think they tend to be given chances by clubs more, for example, because they play for Barcelona. Obviously, Manchester United as well. I think you know other big clubs, Liverpool. We've seen that with you know Bournemouth buying Brad Smith, and you know obviously Slanky came from Chelsea's academy. But that, that type, I think, teams are more willing to take players from cl- big clubs or big youth systems rather than taking younger, you know, punts on younger players, as you say, from you know. You, from say you know a, a, a mid 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 you know a Mechelen or a, in, in Belgium or a you know I'm just using random teams here or an Aarhus in Denmark because they've got that track record developing a player of a certain level and obviously reaching the top let the, the B team at Barcelona because of how many good players come through their academies. In theory, people think that they must be a good player, but obviously they played in the, the same system a long time. So I think there's there's a bit of a bias towards that, definitely. Ram, Matt, any, any thoughts? I think precedence is very important, of course, because everyone, nothing instills confidence like a good track record, doesn't it? So, for example, you know that you're buying quality from Ajax or buying quality from Salzburg. Similarly, this translates to lower levels, like you mentioned. Zelina, Pitoral, uh, Norseland, Michelin, probably not Michelin. But I, I think everyone, uh, even when a club is buying players in general for their first team, they're going to look at areas where players have come from in terms of regions or leagues and then translate it well, whether it's to do with style of play or style of league that they are transferring to. So I think the same principle applies to buying young players as well. You know that. A club, preferably, has its ethos instilled in its younger team. So when you're buying a player from a certain type of team like that, you know what kind of attributes that player is going to have. And if they have a track record of translating, then there's literally literally nothing like it. Which is why I think Salzburg is going to be a huge selling club to teams higher up the European footballing food chain, so to speak, because they spend obscene amounts of money on young players. I I was just looking through their transfers the other day. They spend millions on youngsters from Slovakia, Switzerland, and so on, who haven't played senior football. But this is their area of investment. So they bring them into their system. They will nurture them with their values, and they'll give them some senior games. And then that's literally ripe for the picking for uh, maybe top 10 club in the Premier League or in the Bundesliga, German Bundesliga, or Italy, or so on and so forth. Uh, a very good example, someone to watch is probably uh, Karim Ademi, who they bought from Unterhaching, I think, in the in the third division in Germany. For he he had played for the under 18s. He hadn't played for their senior side yet, if I'm not wrong. And he, I mean, I hope I'm not wrong, but I expect him to go to a team, a good team in the top five leagues, because of this precedent that has been established uh, by Red Bull Salzburg and. We probably won't have to wait for Ademi to have broken out as much as Erling Haaland has done before he gets his move. And that's that's my that's my hopeful prediction. Anyway, I may end up looking stupid, but that's what I think. So yeah, in conclusion, it's all about precedence, isn't it? I I, I completely agree, Ram. I think you've made a great point about Salzburg and that leafing system where they back themselves with development. They spent, as you say, they have spent a lot of money. They look at Japanese, Korean players. They look at you know Eastern European players, and they do spend. A lot of money at young ages, and they back themselves. And Adi Amy, I think he's a great player. I mean, Adamu, the other striker that they've got in the in the leafing squad. I think Adamu's now gone up to um, Salzburg, hasn't he? He was hoping to play in the second half of the season before it got curtailed. But yeah, I think and you know we'll come to you know the the, fi- the final question 
now for this week before we end, end the pod. And we've cut, we've 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 touched on a, on a lot of this, and you know, we'll just take quick thoughts on it. Really, it, it, this is from Jackson Huxley. Huxley, sorry, how can you identify a wonder kid? when they've played so very few minutes, often top academy talents progress so far, and then their minutes come to a halt. And obviously, we've, we've covered a lot of that. What I would just like to say, like, I get your guys' opinion on is, I, you know, the UEFA you think is something I, I, I do watch, and I think that that's quite a good level. I am not a big fan, though, of watching international youth tournaments under-17s, under-18s, because... I, I think club football against. I think you can you can often find I mean, there's examples of both ways where players are made that who've done well in those tournaments. But there's also a lot of examples of people who start in them tournaments don't do it, don't go on to achieve much at the, at the, at the men's level. And I think there's too much stock, and obviously a lot of clubs spend a lot of money on players who do well in these under eighteen, under nineteen tournaments. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on. Do you think when you know? In terms of when we haven't got the data, and we haven't got you know you know that what you know a lot of video footage in terms of you know senior minutes, do you look up? Can you do you think you can find one of the kids by watching youth international tournaments? Do you think you can find them by watching Premier League? You know you know Premier League two under eighteen football. Do you think that's a good? I think you can tell talent, but can you really say that a wonder kid because they're not playing against men? I was just wanting to get your thoughts on that. I think you can pick out. Yeah, as you say, I think you you then rely on the eye a bit more than we would normally to identify people because um i think if you look back at i've certainly watched a lot of these tournaments in the past and there are players you've watched and you think um there's one called i think it's kubalai who played for tottenham i think they bought him he's played for the ivory coast and he scored like like five goals against brazil or something ridiculous um in one game and so half of europe was suddenly after him and he he never really kind of kicked on but then i've seen also watched them and i've I've seen players who have then gone on to become really good senior players. I mean, the obvious example um, is the England under-17 team of World Cup winners a few years back, which had like Jane Sancho, uh, um, Hudson-Odoi, Rianne Brewster, uh, Foden. Yeah, I mean, it was a who's who really of of current wonder kids who are, who've made it to the senior level. Um, and... So yeah, that team. But then they played against the a Spanish team, um, who met them in the final. And of that Spanish team, I think one of the guys was signed by Dortmund and has ended up, um, kind of flitting around on loan in the Spanish second division. And a few of the others have kind of kicked into the res- reserves level, B team level football. Um, so it's it's really variable. I I remember watching. Uh, Daniel Sturridge, who stood out a mile playing for the England under-16s in one tournament. Um, but I also remember people like Billy Jones being hyped up as the new Rio Ferdinand. And he's gone on to have a very good career, but he's, he's not hit those heights. So, um, yeah, it's it's difficult to judge at that level with all the differences in physicality. Um, I remember Jose Baxter at Everton was was hyped up massively beyond his, his level. Again, he's had a career, um, obviously problems with it, but you get these you get these players and they do well in one tournament that's on TV and suddenly they're they're the next big thing and you know from watching it that they've just been lucky or they've they've had a, a good game that happens to be on telly. So yeah, there's there's lots of variety and reasons why it doesn't happen for some players. Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, I think it's there's a level of difficulty if you're you're dealing with a, a finite amount of games, to be honest. If you're looking at a small sample size, if you apply it to the senior level, would you you look to bring in a player and spend a high 
or make a high transfer fee for a player that's only performed well in seven games in an international tournament. Would you would you take that calculated risk as to to sp- splash out on that player when there's only a limited sample size? Really, it is all about doing as much due diligence as possible, and it's it's where that where these youth team games aren't. There isn't a level of video footage. It's being able to marry up that live data scouting as and where possible, just to to expand that sample size and give you as much due diligence as possible to understand whether that player is represented accurately within that kind of small sample size of games that we've seen that have been broadcast to the to the wider audience. And also that kind of live scouting as well gives you an understanding of and a feel for, for the player as well. Um, and it really just allows you to get a more holistic holistic approach to, to, the, to the scouting of that player as well, rather than looking at it from such a, finite sample size i think that that that's a great way to end matt i think you've hit the nail, hit the nail on the head there in terms of obviously as you'd like that the more evidence you have and as a company that's what we like obviously we like that data we'd like to see that, that the play against men and i think it's very i think well, you, you know when you're watching players at those levels you're making big projections on what you think they could be based on who they're playing against and how they perform in small small sample size in tournaments so i think that that's, that's a great way to end um and you know this week we've had an article out in the athletic discussing you know Everton's recruitment possible recruitment strategy and squad building uh, for this summer uh, hopefully you can check that out uh, we also did a bonus podcast with me Tim and Tom that sounds a bit crazy but me Tim and Tom yeah uh, about, about about that said article so catch that and uh, please continue to subscribe and, and rate this uh, any parting thoughts guys on Wonder Kids I'll bite Andy I think Wonder Kids as a topic is a little abstract a little philosophical hard to define there are players who are absolute superstars that come along but then there are others who show promise early in their careers and then immediately have a lot of pressure piled onto them. And it's difficult for these players, physically, mentally, I'm sure. And I think the best thing that we can do as fans and onlookers is to take it easy a little. And those who are directly invested in their youth development, of course, to let them follow a natural path of progression with the conditions that are most conducive to the optimal development of these players. I think that's easier said than done, but it is the name of the game. I don't think we could say it any better. Better going out with the Aristotle of scouting that Ram is. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening this week. And, and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>